0: The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Good morning, church. It's a pleasure and an honor to spend this time with you. We are going to continue studying through the book of Revelation. This morning, we're in the second half of chapter 13, and it's an exciting text. We get the mark of the beast and the number 666 and all the rest. So we'll be in Revelation 13, verse 11, all the way to the end of the chapter. So Revelation 13, 11 to 18. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Revelation 13, 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence. And makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, So that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes both causes all both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. So that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six, six, six. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. Lord, we confess our need for your help and understanding your word. Lord, we pray. The Holy Spirit would take this time and own this time, Lord, that you would take your word and uh, you would enable me and help me to teach your word faithfully, to teach it clearly, and we pray that the hearing of your word would have its effect in our lives, Lord, that, that we would understand what you mean to say from this text, that we would see you clearly And that we would hear you, not just with our eardrums, but with our very hearts and souls, Lord, that we would believe you, that we would follow you, that we would endure whatever comes with wisdom and faithfulness to you, because you're so worthy and so worth it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, here's one of those moments we've all been waiting for. Uh, You preach through Revelation, and at some point, we all want to know. About the mark of the beast and the infamous number 666 and what it all means. You're probably aware there's been loads of theories about this. Maybe it's a social security number. Maybe it's an implanted microchip. Maybe it's a vaccine or a tattoo. Uh, My favorite theory I think it's an iPhone with the Facebook app downloaded. I'm just kidding. Well, we're going to try to unpack that mark and what it means. Um, but before we do, I want to think with you a little bit about the idea of compromise. Compromise. How do you, how do you feel when I say the word compromise? Some think, uh, maybe you're thinking it's wonderful. Oh, compromise, we need it. We can't live without it. Maybe others are thinking, oh, this is awful. This is the problem of our day. Compromise. It kind of shows us, doesn't it? It's a rich word, a rich idea with some different meanings to it. I think we can agree that at the core of this idea of compromise is um, the idea of changing something for the sake of an outside influence. Um, I'm going to adjust something for this influence out there. And I would say there's definitely, certainly a good kind of compromise Uh, For instance, I don't think you can have a healthy relationship with someone without healthy compromise. Try being married to someone who never compromises on anything. Always insists they're always right. No, compromise can be very healthy, very good. In fact, you read the New Testament and you'll see that Christians are often called by God to compromise for the sake of the gospel. Compromise for the sake of the gospel. Here's one example. Philippians chapter 2, 1 to 4, Paul's talking about community life or the church of Philippi. He says this Philippians 2, verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Then verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus so this is what i mean by compromise for the sake of the gospel paul clearly tells his church its members give up your self interests give up your rights your preferences on things that are important to you but not essential. Compromise in a way for the sake of unity in the gospel. So Paul says, if, if you are a Christian, this is your mind. You'll actually be eager to do this because, you know, Jesus Christ went to a cross to have you unified to him. So we want to give up ourselves, our preferences, to honor and serve others. This year has given us a lot of opportunities to practice Christ-like compromise, compromise for the gospel, hasn't it? I want to thank God for uh, so many ways, so many of you have been eager to do that for his glory. So we see that those who know the gospel will be eager sometimes to compromise for the gospel, for the sake of the gospel. But there's another kind of compromise as well, isn't there? This is the dark side of the idea. Uh, In this kind of compromise, we betray something valuable by lowering an essential standard due to that external influence. It's the kind of compromise where we betray something valuable by lowering an essential standard due to that external influence. Here's an example. Uh, You read the book of Galatians. You'll see the church there, leaders there, speakers there were Compromising the gospel itself. Some were teaching salvation occurs through faith in Jesus plus. It's, it's Jesus plus to be right with God. You be right with God through faith in Christ plus, uh, for instance, keeping the Jewish law, getting circumcised. Paul thought here, hey, this, this actually compromises the gospel. No, we're, we're made right with God by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And so Galatians ends up being perhaps Paul's most intense letter. He would not compromise the gospel or the call of the gospel. He confronts Peter about this, right? In fact, Paul's lack of compromise in this area was actually love for God, his glory, and love for neighbor so that the true gospel could be preserved. I mean, aren't you thankful he did not compromise? We're made right with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So we see, we do sometimes need to compromise for the sake of the gospel, but we are never to compromise the gospel. Oh no. Also, we must never compromise the call of the gospel. So we know that to truly believe the gospel, to trust ourselves to Jesus, who he is, what he's done for us. Uh, God actually has to change your heart for you to do that. He, he comes and regenerates you. He makes you alive so that the gospel is beautiful. You, you want it, you trust yourself to it. And so we see then that when you believe the gospel, it's going to lead to further transformation. By the power of the Holy Spirit, according to God's word, Jesus will make his people more and more holy doesn't happen all at once it can be a slow a difficult process but Christians want this we know that God's ways are life they're good and we want to please him in how we live and we know what that is as we study his word so we see then there will always be pressure in some way not just to compromise the gospel itself but also to compromise its call There will be pressure to compromise on the life the gospel claims to bring for those who believe it. And we realize the church has always struggled with this. Uh, In Revelation, we've seen that some church leaders in the first century taught, hey, you know what, it's okay to believe in Jesus and participate in the pagan idol worship of the day. Go ahead and compromise the call. John says, No, 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 no. That's, that's actually spiritual adultery. We would be betraying something beautiful by lowering an essential standard. No, we can't compromise the call. And then you think you could, you could find as many illustrations as you want through church history, pressure to compromise the call. In American history, some leaders of churches taught it's okay to believe in Jesus and participate in racial slavery. We would say, no, that, that denies the gospel and its call. No, we can't do that. Or uh, in the mid-1900s, we know some German churches taught it's okay to believe in Jesus and capitulate with the Nazi party. From our vantage today, we'd say, no, No, it compromises the gospel. You have to take a stand against evil like that. So it makes you wonder, well, what are modern varieties? From my perspective, it's clear to me that one of the most common in our day, some leaders in Christian churches teaching Christians can believe believe in Jesus and follow our cultural moment in denying biblical definitions of gender. Uh, sexual practice, marriage. The New Testament, I think, says no. It's clear in God's word that those things are core to God's design for humanity, our understanding of the gospel and how to glorify the gospel itself. So, so we can look back at some of these things and think, man, these, how could these Christians compromise the call like that? They're a bunch of hypocrites. And then we, then we realize the immense pressure there can be to compromise, because in, in many of those scenarios, if you don't compromise, there's a legitimate cost. A legitimate cost, a painful cost. So a big question for us is this. How do you know whether or not you're compromising for the gospel, which in a way is Christ-like, or whether you're compromising the gospel and its call for your comfort, which is Christ's betrayal? We need wisdom, don't we? We need wisdom, courageous, enduring wisdom. Well, I, br- I bring up this idea of compromise because that's what our text is about this morning, I'm sure. We're continuing our study through the book of Revelation. We know Revelation is about the reign of Jesus Christ. He wins, and so will his people. So we're encouraged to endure faithfully for him, no matter the cost, because he's so, so worth it. And so we've seen seven letters, seven seals, seven trumpets. Now we're in seven visions, and they're all looking at the same moment from different perspectives. They are all looking at what any Christian in history could call right now. Anytime between Jesus' first and second coming, that's the age we're looking at, the age of church, the age of the tribulation. And so we see it's not always an easy time. Last week we pondered this first beast and we saw that this beast signifies government gone bad, satanically inspired to demand idolatry and then go beastly on those who won't submit. So the call last week in light of that beast was this, Revelation thirteen ten. Here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. In some way, many different ways, persecution is going to happen sometimes there's nothing you can do about it endure make it through to the end with your faith in Christ so this week we meet the second beast and the call in this passage is a little different than the call from the last one because the beast is a little different what's the call you see it in verse 18 it says this calls for wisdom this calls for wisdom So I want to see four things with you this morning. Number one, meet the beast. Let's understand what this signifies. Number two, see two things the beast does. Number three, see the two marks. There's the mark of the beast. There's another mark as well to consider. And then number four, let's remember our call. So we're going to see the beast, two things it does, two marks, our call. So we'll dive right in. Let's learn about the beast we see Verses 11 and 12, a beast is rising out of the earth, has two horns like a lamb, speaks like a dragon. That's interesting, isn't it? Looks like a lamb, talks like a dragon. You can almost imagine this image, a humble lamb. But then when this lamb talks, when he bleats, flames are spewing out of his mouth. Smoke is erupting out of his nostrils. You almost want to peer behind the lamb and you think you see a Long red tail. What kind of lamb is this? What does it mean? We've got to unpack the symbolism in Revelation. We know who's the lamb. It's clear as day in the book of Revelation. Jesus Christ is the lamb. And he's called that because he came and took on flesh to live a perfect life and then offer himself as the ultimate sacrifice for us to save us from our sins. He rose from the dead. He reigns now and forever. One day he'll return for us. He loves and cares for his people. Jesus Christ is the lamb. He's the one who makes us right with God, who brings us to the Father. We know that. Also in the context of Revelation, we know who the dragon is. Who's the dragon? Well, it's Satan. It's the devil, a powerful, personal, spiritual being who hates God, wants to destroy God's work and God's people. And we've seen in this chapter the dragon does his work through these beasts. So the first beast had this dragon's authority and was brutal with it. He had blasphemous names, so he's aggressively against God and His ways and His people. But the second beast comes across so differently. The first beast is this leopard, bear, lion, raging. The second beast, oh, it's look, it's a lamb comes at you differently. He looks looks harmless, even, even good. He seems plausible and enlightened and kind. Looks like a lamb, but he talks. He talks like a dragon. So what does this mean? We remember back in this parable of chapter 12, right? There's this dragon after this woman, and he spews this flood out of his mouth to harm the woman. We remember the The woman represents God's covenant people, his people that he loves. The the dragon is Satan going after the church and spewing out of the mouth. That means false teaching. And so we saw the earth in that parable, swallowed that up and it shows God's gonna save his people from this false teaching. And yet this teaching goes into the earth. Where does this lamb come from? Did you see? Came from out of the earth. It's like the teaching was planted in the, This little dragon lamb came out. So so what does it show us? Well, I think it very very clearly signifies counterfeit religion, especially, I think, counterfeit Christianity. Because basically John is saying this looks like Jesus in a way, but he talks like the devil. It looks good. Looks religious, looks, looks godly, but he talks. He teaches like Satan. In fact, uh, twice later in Revelation, this beast, the second beast, is called the false prophet. So that just confirms this is counterfeit religion. Kind of looks and sounds really nice and kind of good, but wh- when you get to what it really teaches, well, it compromises the gospel, and it compromises the call of the gospel. And so we're told here in this chapter, our times will be full of false religion. And in a way, it'll look good. Maybe it'll use Christian terms, just a little bit different meanings. Or maybe even a good language like love or a higher power or spiritual but not religious. It could be the leaders are especially nice and even show care for people. But the big question is this. What is it calling you to worship? What's it calling you to trust in? How's it calling you to live? So remember, everyone worships something. Everyone serves something. And we see here this second beast wants people, even though it looks like the lamb, it wants people to worship the dragon and the first beast. It, it's calling people, really, to serve anything other than the real and true Jesus Christ has seen in the scriptures, it wants you to worship this world system fundament, fundamentally in opposition to God and his ways. And so this beast brings a counterfeit worship. And we just back up a little bit and we see this entire chapter is about counterfeit worship. Really, we're looking at this counterfeit trinity. We have this uh, sovereign, this counterfeit sovereign in the devil who gives his authority to the beast. And then this beast that he he died, and yet it looks like uh, he lives. It's like he's as if he's resurrected, and everyone's looking to him and worshiping him. And then we see this kind of counterfeit Holy Spirit in the second beast, who draws people to look upon the first beast and worship the one who died and rose. I mean, it stands in direct opposition to the living God, the Holy Trinity, the true Sovereign Father who gave authority to His beloved Son, who. His son who gave himself for our sins, who died on the cross and rose from the dead and reigns now. And Jesus, the one who's glorified by the Holy Spirit, who always lifts our eyes to Christ and what he has done for us. So the whole chapter is giving you this tidal wave of counterfeit. Counterfeit Trinity, a counterfeit teaching, a counterfeit savior, a lamb, oh, it looks good, but... Talks like a dragon. So this is false religion, probably especially false Christianity. It's going to teach you. It's going to sound so good. It's going to look so good. It's going to teach you to compromise the gospel. It's going to teach you to compromise the call of the gospel. So let's look now at the, the goal of this beast. Two things it really wants to do. We see this in verses 13 to 15. We'll start there. In verses 13 to 15, you get this collection of kind of amazing and strange miracles, great signs done in front of everyone. Uh, This idol starts talking. Uh, Fire comes down from heaven. What are we supposed to do with this? And it's another time we have to ask, are we supposed to take this more literally, more figuratively, more symbolically? Well, we've learned over time, haven't we, that taking things literally doesn't really fit. It's not really the best way to interpret this book. Even in chapter 13, these beasts are so obviously symbolic. You take these kind of miracle verses here in 13 to 15 too literally, it can lead you to think that it's only going to be this thing that strangely occurs entirely in the future. And that, would, that kind of interpretation would make it irrelevant to every Christian for the last 2,000 years. And you just think, that can't be. That's not the best way to interpret this. No, this... This is something that was happening in John's day for his original audience. And and this is something that has been happening ever since and is happening now. So here's what I think it means. It's symbolic for deception that is horribly persuasive. Deception that is horribly persuasive. The idol comes alive. Oh, it's the living God. Let's worship it. The fire falls. Oh, this is, this is the truth. Let's follow it. You know, that, that image of fire falling from the sky, if you, if you know your Old Testament, it reminds you of Elijah, right? And there was this competition between the gods. Fire fell from the sky, and it, it showed that Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's the true God. We had this image of Elijah a couple chapters ago when thinking of the two witnesses of the church. Remember it's kind of this combo between Moses and Elijah and all these kind of miraculous things were happening through them and we saw that that's actually symbolic for the power of our witness as we share the gospel according to his word. And so as we are to be in a way Elijah you know prepare the way for the Lord, preach the gospel, teach God's word. Here you have the counterfeit Elijah. The false witness, bringing teaching that is incredibly persuasive. You know, these, these images of miracles, they show us perhaps, sometimes, perhaps, sometimes false teachers can't even conjure something that seems miraculous through demonic power. Maybe so. I, imagine it, it occurred. Even then, our question has to be, is their teaching True? Is their teaching true? Um, look at Deuteronomy chapter 13. This idea is as old as Moses in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 13.1 reads like this. If a prophet or dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you come to pass, and he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. Verse 3 Well, that message from Deuteronomy fits this context of Revelation, doesn't it? It doesn't matter how persuasive that lamb-like dragon can be. No. Is it teaching the truth about the living God from his word? Is it preaching the gospel and the gospel call? So we see the first thing this lamb-like dragon wants to do he wants to deceive you. And he wants to make a compromise with idolatrous systems just so compelling. You know, often he'll come at you with kind of an emotional plea. He'll use the, victim, the, the vehicle of story and experience. And this text shows us all the crowd is buying in. And then if you, if you don't fall in line, you'll look like the evil one. You'll look like the ridiculous one. That's the first thing the slam like dragon does, deceive in a way that's deeply persuasive, calling for compromise. The second thing he does is if he can't deceive, he persecutes. And you see this in verses 15 to 17. If he can't deceive, he persecutes. Verse 15, uh, his deception is so compelling that it, makes those who would not worship the image seem to deserve to be slain. Worthy of death. And then also in 16, he makes it to where uh, if you don't fall in line, if you don't buy in, if you don't participate, you won't even be able to participate in society more. You won't be able to, to buy or sell or run a business or function in the community. So here we, we start to get, right, to this mark, the mark of the beast, the number uh, and it, you know it's been so easy, especially I think for modern American Christians to read this these verses only like it's something that, that might day come, that might one day come, you know, just right around the corner. The idea that it's in the future—it's really important to realize that for Christians in the first century, this was already occurring. This was happening to the first people who ever heard these words. Um. In these cities in Asia Minor, under the Roman emperor, there was, there was often business guilds, for instance, that would have like a patron idol or be dedicated to emperor worship. And sometimes participation in that business community meant idol worship or it meant parties and celebrations full of things that didn't exactly fit with the call of the gospel. And you had a choice. You could either compromise or lose your job. You can't buy or sell. Um, one commentator says uh, citizens in towns of Asia Minor were even pressured to offer sacrifices on altars outside their houses as festive processions passed by. Can you imagine a large crowd going down your street, worshiping some sort of God or, or Caesar, and noticing the yards as they went by? Does, does your yard? Have the sacrifice in it, because um, if it doesn't, we we're gonna notice, and that might bring a painful cost for you, for your church, for your family. Can you can you feel the pressure? Can can you can you hear the the lamb like dragon saying, "Hey, you know what? Uh, everybody's got to work, right? W- worship Jesus in your heart, and uh and go ahead and put the altar out in the yard. Compromise. It's a modern reality, even today. Several countries today place your religion on your personal ID. And it can really set you back if it's not the right one. You can, you can feel the pressure, right? Just put the right thing on the card so you can get the job. Do you, do you see? The beast gives you two options, deception deception. Or persecution. And so we realize persecution is just increasing the temperature on temptation itself. Per- persecution is turning up the heat to pressure you to sin against God. Persecution asks you just how valuable to you is it to be faithful to Jesus Persecution kind of says, okay, so you'd follow Jesus if there wasn't much of a cost. But what if there was a heavy cost? Would you follow him then? Who would you serve then? That leads us to the two marks. The two marks. So verses 17 to 18, no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, the name of the beast, the number of his name. A little bit of possible historical context for this idea of the mark. Sometimes slaves would be branded. Sometimes soldiers would be marked. So we get the idea, right? The mark is obviously about identifying kind of who owns you, identifying your king. The mark is about identifying who you serve. And so here, in this case, the mark is the name of the beast or its number on your forehead, on your hand. So... 666, six, six. what, what does this mean? What, what is the name of the beast? What's this all about? Well, first you should know there was this ancient, pat- ancient practice called gematria. And um, it was this idea where you would assign numerical value to letters and then add up the numbers and, and you'd get something out of the number. So I think it's, I think it's true. Most commentators would agree uh, the most common theory about 666 here in Revelation 13 is that it refers to Nero and his Rome. So you would you would take Nero, Caesar in Greek. You would translate it to Hebrew. You would do your math, and you would get 666. And in, in a way, that sort of works, right? You look at Caesar, his reign, his Rome. Uh, it did look like these beasts. Blasphemous names on the heads, forcing you to, to uh, compromise, and if you didn't, you would pay for it. So there's something to that. But I think it's a little too, too small. Uh, there are some problems with this theory. Number one, John's audience probably doesn't know Hebrew. Number two, you kind of have to fiddle with the spelling a little bit to get the numbers to be quite right. In fact, the rules for this Gematria thing seem so loose. History shows us you can almost make any name fit uh, basically, you just pick some notable leader you don't like or trust very much, and before you know it, ah, 666, this is who it is. Well, you know, I think throughout Revelation, this really isn't the way John uses numbers, is it? And so, so I'll ask this question, I hope it'll make sense. Is the number 666 the question, or is it the answer? What's the name of the beast? And you're like, 666. Oh, we got to figure out who this might be. Or is it, no, oh, now we see who the beast is. He's 666. Huh. Don't forget the theme of counterfeit that is all through this chapter. And remember, in the surrounding context here, there's not one mark. There's two. There's two. Do you remember back in chapter 7, God seals his people for himself. Do you know we see them again? We'll look at this next week. You know, we see them again just just on the next page, just in the next verses here in Revelation 14. Look at Revelation 14, verse 1. Revelation 14, 1. Here's, Here's the real thing. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him... 144,000 who, what? Had his name and his father's name written, where? On their foreheads. Here's the other mark, the the better mark. We know that 144,000, that's symbolic. It signifies completeness. Not one of God's people is missing. He knows each one. He loves each one. He will keep each one. In fact... He's so committed to his people that God himself has written his name on their foreheads. The name of the Father, the name of the Son. It reminds us of a baptism. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So how encouraging is this? If you've trusted your life to Christ, you can know that God has written his name on your head. You belong to him. You're marked as his now, even as we say that, we realize, right, the mark is not literal, of course. I mean, it's not like I, I try to pray with someone, they become a Christian, and then we watch the head, you know, to see if it works. And, whoa, look, there it is, the sign. No, it's not literal. You don't become a Christian and see a tattoo on your forehead. No, these marks signify the deepest spiritual reality about you. These, are a, these, these signify a spiritual reality that pertains to this core issue. Who has your heart? Who do you worship? Do you see the mark of the beast? It goes on your head and your hand. That's because it's about how you believe and how you live. It shows itself. The mark of the beast is not ultimately literal as if an outside mark could make you right with God or not on its own. No, the mark is a spiritual reality answering the question of your willingness either to suffer for faithfulness to the gospel and its call or to compromise it. You know, in a way, the idea of these marks serves as a sort of a wake-up call or a warning. John is saying here, hey, I know the pressure's hot, but if you persist in compromising the gospel because of the pressure of your cultural moment, if, if you persist in compromising the gospel Call because of the pressure of your moment. Even if you say you like Jesus, but you compromise on his essential standards, John is saying, maybe it's not Jesus that has you marked. You may have another master altogether. And so there's this thing where it's like, would you be be willing to not be able to buy or sell? in order to be faithful to Christ? Would, would you be willing even maybe to die in order to be faithful to the gospel and its call? If you would, it's because you're marked by the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. If, if you wouldn't, maybe there's a different mark. And what's the name? What's the name of that mark? What's the name of the beast? Six, six, six. You know, many, many commentators, you know, they can't help but see this. There's a counterfeit trinity, right, in this chapter. And as we read Revelation, the, the number that signifies wholeness, completeness, holiness, beauty, that number is seven. In, in a way, the Holy Trinity could be seven, seven, seven. Uh, do you see now the, maybe the name of this beast? 666, you know know what that means? Counterfeit, incomplete, unsatisfying, not the real thing. It falls short, it's corrupted, it's broken. It's, it's, It's an insult to the beast. It's almost saying, you thought compromise would make you happy, help you fit in, live a better life. It's a false gospel. It's not true. It won't save. It'll leave you incomplete. That's why John calls this, he says, the number of a man. It probably doesn't mean discover the number of the one mysterious human leader. That's not what it means, I don't think. It means it's the number that belongs to humanity. And what's the number that belongs to humanity? It's not a seven, it's a six. 666, self-made, idolatrous religion that just deceives and ruins and leaves you under the judgment of a holy God. It's incompleteness. It's counterfeit. It's broken. So it's this message, you you don't want to go that way even though all the pressure is telling you. Compromise. Oh no, it's just a six. You want the seven. You, You want a fellowship with the Holy Triune God, you want salvation through Jesus Christ. He's worth not compromising. So, this calls for wisdom. This calls for wisdom. Here's our call What do you love? Who do you love? What do you serve? What do you worship? Do you know the true gospel? Salvation by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? And are you desiring to be more like your Savior who's won you, who's loved you, and to follow his call according to his word? The call is really to fixate and be satisfied in and delighted in Christ himself. Christ is our wisdom, who he is, what he's done, his heart for us, what he calls us to. You know, I remember... Paul praying and working for the church in Colossae, what he wrote there in Colossians 2. Look at Colossians 2.2. 2. He's, he's desiring that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There he is. And verse 4, Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Be so satisfied with the true Jesus Christ in his word that any any compromise looks distasteful to you. You won't be deceived with plausible arguments. You know who your treasure is. It's Jesus You know, satisfied in Christ, we can endure the pressure with wisdom. Uh, Hebrews 10.34, in the context of the book of Hebrews, is there's this group probably of Jewish Christians who are being highly persecuted, and there's temptation to go back to just uh, following the Mosaic law and leave Christ behind. And so the whole letter is, no, Christ is better, Christ is better, Christ is better. Hebrews 10.34, the author says this, of this church. He says, I know about your faith. Verse 10.34, you've had compassion on those in prison. And listen to this. You joyfully accepted. What? You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Since you knew. You yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Do You see the wisdom these Christians had? They were facing pressure to compromise, compromise the gospel, compromise its call. And if they didn't, they'd lose even their property. You can't buy or sell. You know what they said? They said, if that's my choice, take my property. Take it. Because if my choice is Jesus and my inheritance in, with Him or the property of this world, I'm going with Jesus every time. He is a better possession and an abiding one. My name is written in His book, His name is written on my head. I'm His, He's mine. I can even suffer with joy because of the thrill of belonging. To him. That's our call. That's wisdom. Satisfaction in Christ. Who he is and what he's done. So let's conclude. We see in Revelation 13. Throughout this age there will be dragons in lambs clothing. Look a little like Jesus. Sounds so persuasive. Persuasive. When you look at what they're, <clears throat> excuse me, actually saying, what they're actually calling for, and they talk like the dragon. And they're after your worship. They want, you to invite, they want you to compromise the gospel or its call. So Christians, don't be persuaded by niceness alone, by popularity, by apparent success, by emotional plea, even by seemingly a miracle. Don't be pushed by the pressure. no. Be devoted to Christ himself according to his word. Endure with wisdom. Hey, we want to be eager to compromise for the gospel. Give ourselves up for others. But by God's grace, may we never compromise the gospel itself or its clear call. God loves us. He knows us. He'll keep us for himself. To the end, he's worth it. Let's pray. Uh, our Father, it's a, you're honest with us. And as we read this word inspired by your spirit, we see sometimes it will be very difficult to be faithful to the gospel, to be faithful to your word, to be faithful to your call. Sometimes there will be a cost. Lord, give us wisdom. Help us to love you and your truth so deeply to be so satisfied in who you are and what you've done for us, to see that your ways are life, to want them, to treasure them, so that even when, uh, when there's that counterfeit, Lord, we, we would smell that out, we would see that. We would turn from that, we would not want it. We'd see it's a six, we don't want it. And help us even when there's pain, Lord, to, uh, to, to joyfully endure it knowing you're better, you're worth it. Help us never to compromise on you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.